Now, NDE Radio, a weekly exploration of near-death experiences and similar encounters with the other side. Now, here's your host, Lee Whitting. Welcome to NDE Radio with Lee Whitting. Whether you're listening on TalkZone, by podcast, through the archives of our ad-free shows on our YouTube channel, or connected through the incredible content of our Facebook page. Our guest today, Wayne Morrison, writes about himself. I was born in 1955 in upstate New York. My early years are something of a blur because I was a military dependent and traveled around the country until the age of 10. At that time, I settled in Newport, Rhode Island, where I lived until I was 18. That time I got married and joined the U.S. Air Force. I became a military police officer. I soon had a daughter who was born in Denver, Colorado, and after a couple of years in Colorado, I was transferred to the Philippines and then to Syracuse, New York. I decided to leave the military and join the Newport, Rhode Island Police Department. Worked there for 30 years and retired as captain of detectives. My wife was a director of tourism in Newport, and we traveled to different areas of the world frequently. I've also been a musician and songwriter and singer. I'm retired now and live in Florida with my wife of almost 50 years. We have two daughters, six grandchildren, and one great-grandchild. Now, it was February of 1972 when then-17-year-old Wayne experienced an NDE as the result of mixing medications and alcohol at a teenage party. The experience was so profound, so moving, that when Wayne returned to his body, he immediately wanted to kill himself in order to go back to the perfect peace he'd discovered on the other side, until a cosmic no stopped him from slitting his wrists. After his years of service and police work, Wayne is spending more time now exploring the implications of what he saw on the other side. Wayne Morrison, welcome to NDE Radio. Hi, Lee. Good to be here. Oh, it's good to have you. Uh, uh, Syracuse is where my uh, father lived, and we uh, we were there frequently, but probably not overlapping the time that um, that you were there. I would have been there in the late 70s yeah well he was there too but it's possible we could have been in the same place at the same time yeah um your your experience uh happened um uh completely out of the blue and you didn't know what to make of it so why don't you start start there at, and tell us what happened i was 17 years old and i had uh, gone to a party and at this party were a bunch of older people. Well, I say older, they're probably in their 20s, which for me, you know, from the age of 17 to someone in their 20s would be a large gulf at that time. And uh, I had taken some medication and uh, I was feeling a little lightheaded, but not sick. And I started drinking there. And I don't really know at what point, but at some point I was there and then I was somewhere else. Uh, I don't have anything to point to, and I've always been very honest about this. I wasn't one of these people who was pronounced dead at a hospital or anything like that. I simply was at this party, and the next thing I knew, I was moving down, down, I don't know if the word's down, across a, a very dark expanse. And in the intervening years, I think I've read a lot about a tunnel, and so maybe I attached that word to it, too. But I'm not even sure that's accurate because the expanse was all encompassing. So if it was a tunnel, it was one that I didn't see, actually. And there was a deep, dark droning sound uh, 
which I'd never heard before since. The closest I could come to it is years later in the Air Force, I was in the Philippines and I was in a, ba- a pretty bad earthquake. And that sound sounded similar to this, although this was really resonant. Mm. deep. And I was terrified in the Philippines in the earthquake with my wife and daughter. Uh, but in this instance, I wasn't terrified. It was the opposite of terrified. I was moving and I had this thought. It was just it was it, it took over my entire mind, which was I will learn the secret meaning of life. It just ah. it just omnipresent in my mind. And as I somehow emerge out of this black expanse, and, and I don't remember ever seeing that I had a body, but I didn't feel like I didn't have one, if that makes sense. I'm, mm-hmm. I, I, I guess I'm flying. <laughs> now that I think about it, I'm, because I'm moving above a huge field of flowers. And these flowers weren't like anything I'd ever seen or, I, you know, they, it would be a Hollywood creation. They were huge. Uh, you know, I, I can't really tell you how big they were, but maybe they could have been 50 feet. They could have been that big or bigger, but they were below me. And there was this beautiful music, which was um, instrumental. There were, I didn't hear voices. Uh, but as I looked down at the flowers, they began to communicate to me. And it was a communication <laughs> yeah, I, I guess telepathy is the only word we really have here. Uh, I could understand they were supporting me somehow, but it wasn't in English language. It wasn't we support you. It was just somehow a multidimensional understanding of what they were doing. And somehow, and I don't really remember how, I became aware of beings that either were made of light or had a light around them. I can't really recall if they were physical beings. They, they seemed to be physical, but maybe not physical. They were also just so bright and luminous. But they, it was clear right away, they were there to support me. And they were communicating with me in this, in this fashion. And they said, we, we have brought you here. And uh, do you have any questions? And uh, I had several questions. Uh, one of them I remember really clearly was I was 17 and I was intrigued with the idea of is there other life in the universe? And the second you think something there, even before you're done with the thought, you're, all, you're transported immediately to either to or as part of what you're thinking about. So in this case, I was transported or I felt like I was like, I don't know how far, millions, billions of light years. I couldn't begin to guess, but I was looking down on civilizations where exactly they were. I don't know, or I don't recall. And as I was looking down on them, I could see some were somewhat ancient looking and some were not that ancient looking. I never got up close. It it wasn't like I got down on the street with them or something like that. I was always up above. And that was fascinating. And they communicated to me these beings and I, and I don't, there weren't many of them. I'm going to guess there were about four. That's a guess. Uh, But they let me know that I was about to meet uh, a spiritual being of the highest order. And again, there were no words used. That's the best I can communicate what they said to me. And and maybe I should point out at this time at, at the age of 17, I was not, 
I was not raised in a religion of any sort. And uh, I was not anti-religion, but I simply and I was seeking different things. I had read the, some of the Bible. I had read some of the Tibetan Book of Dead. I read on Buddhism, things like that. But I had also rejected the notion of God. I basically was saying, well, there really isn't a God. We live, we die. And that's kind of how I thought at this time, although I would probably be, probably be described better as an agnostic than an atheist, I think. I was doubtful. But at this point, um, and this story, I've heard it a million times since, but it's what happened. Off in the distance is this tiny beam of light, but it's very, very bright. And as I'm looking at it, it's coming closer and getting brighter. And as it I, unfolds in front of me, I, I was going to say land, but it was almost like it was right here. And I had the sense that it was a male but I don't really know that. But in my mind, that's how I pictured it. And this this figure immediately embraced me in this warmth and comfort, this sort of. It, it's so hard to describe. It's uh, this uh, all encompassing, unquestionable acceptance and love like nothing. Nothing could ever interfere with that, that it's so hard to explain. And I think I was feeling, well, I guess I'm home. And I never thought to myself, I'm dead or anything like that. I just thought to myself, well, this must be where I belong. And this being was very um, joyful. This being radiated a lot of joy. It wasn't just, it wasn't some somber, you know, severe presence. It was, it was, this being had a sense of humor because I asked the question that I really wanted to ask, uh, that I think most most of us ask at some point in our lives, why am I here? Why are we here? And the being communicated, not the word love, but the communication of love, as in, as in something I had never been able to absorb before or since, really. And it was just in a way, it was so simple and yet so, so complete that my, I'll call it my spirit, because I think that's what I was in, or something like that. Well, I, I remember it, it did, it felt like I was doing somersaults in midair. And I remember this being laughing, or at least what I, what I would call laughter, just this joy, like, oh, well, you know, like, you, well, I, I've been a father. So like when you have a little baby and the baby does something great and, and you're just laughing and they're laughing, but much more intense than that. So at a certain point, I'm uh, brought to uh, an area where I am shown the uh, history of the world. And this, the way this happened was very strange uh, to me anyway, because it was, <laughs> I don't know, in my mind, as I look back on it, I go, well, it, that's odd, but I'm in this black expanse, but I never feel threatened or, or scared. And in this expanse, a tablet appears. Now, when I say a tablet, I mean like a gray slate, a stone slate is what I'm trying to say. It's like a stone, but, but huge. And um, it's 1972. We're not watching video. So, but, but I did. <laughs> and all of a sudden, I see the history of the world play out. And people have, 
people get a little frustrated with me sometimes because they go, well, why don't you tell me the history of the world? Well, if I could, I would. I know what I saw and I know it was communicated and there were billions of pieces of information. And as this information was communicated, I absorbed it uh, emotionally, intellectually, uh, on all, all kinds of levels. And I understood that everything I saw, which like it, it's incomprehensible to me how you could even add that up, was connected to everything else. There was a relationship with everything. And by that, I mean, like if a dog barked, if an atom bomb fell, I mean everything. And uh, I saw armies. I remember that clashing against each other. And um, it, it was it was um, something to see. You know, you could just see them like like a, a high technicolor movie, I guess, where they were just going like this against each other, you know, and some were victorious and some were not. And but again, when I say I saw this, I, I don't know how long it took. It, it, I feel like it only took seconds. And yet, you know, realistically, I mean, you know, there's no way in my life, in this life, I can absorb how long it took. And at some point, I was told that I had to return. I don't really recall who told me this. I don't know if it was that being I, I was describing or, or these guides that I call them. And as I was told this, I, I said, no, I'm not going back. You know, and there was this uh, tug of war, I think. And this is the part where, where my memory is, is all but completely erased, because it seems to me they said, you have to go back. Now watch. And I don't know what I would have watched or seen. The next actual memory I have is this. I have a memory, a, a vivid memory, of thousands of these beings of light surrounding me. And like in a circle. And, uh, oh, I'm sorry, I left one thing out. They, they, uh, they communicated to me, these beings, prior to this, that you do have to return because you have a great mission to fulfill. <laughs> I know it sounds arrogant, but that's what was communicated. And uh, they surrounded me. And I was being, it was like, it was, it was a send off and uh, they were singing my praises and the way they did this, um, they sang <laughs> in perfect harmony in, in a, in a way that, you know, my, your, I, our ears couldn't hear here. It was like resonating within my spirit, my body, my ears, and it was all improvisational. And because because I, I do play some music, I do understand what we mean by improvisation in the music world here. And I do mean that. But it was like they were in perfect synchronicity with each other. They, it was amazing. And they were singing. The, the most amazing part is I, I was, uh, you know, I was a lost soul up to that point. I was a kid who had drifted around. My father left me before I was one, left me and my sister. My sister wasn't even born then. And uh, I came from a fractured family, you know, like a lot of families, you know, it happens all over the place more often than not, I think. And the, the idea that they were sending me off and praising me was just so astounding. I, I even to this day, it, 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 I'm in awe of the idea. But that is what happened. No matter how I want to tell people, well, you know, oh, shucks. But that is what happened. They they sent me back saying I was going back to fulfill a great mission. So <laughs> that's, 
The next thing I know, I'm in the bathroom in this, in this apartment, seedy apartment. <laughs> and uh, I'm in a bathroom looking for a razor blade. I can't quite remember if I found one or not. I feel like I might have. Uh, and a voice said, no. And someone opened the bathroom door. I dropped the blade. And somebody said, he's in here. And that was the end of that experience. And I mean, just like, like opening a door and shutting the door. How that happened, I guess I'll never know in this life. I hope to know at some point. Did much of that experience stay with you uh, later on or, or did you just set it aside? The next day, uh, my, my girlfriend, I was, um, let's see, let me get my age right here. I was 17. She was probably only 15. Mm-hmm. I went to see her and I told her what had happened. She has told me in the intervening years that I knew it happened to you because she knows me. She knows that I wasn't that guy. And I, I would just like to throw this out here. I, I was raised in the late 60s, early 70s. I know what drugs are. I know what drugs can do. This was not a drug experience. It was clearly to me, it was clearly the opposite of a drug experience. There was no haze, euphoria, disorientation. It was the most vivid reality I've ever had in my entire life. Everything was crystal clear, much more clear, I I tell people, than when I'm talking to people right now, far more clear than that. Everything was laid out so clearly and precisely and completely in ways that it can't be done here, you know? Let me go back and ask you a couple of questions about what you saw when you were there. When you were, you saw this garden from above with Mm -hmm. flowers that were possibly 50 feet across. Was it a complete garden? Were there trees and streams? It seems to me it was trees and streams, but it was the flowers that stand out the most. Uh And the communications between everything there, and that includes these flowers, were as if you were part of them and they were part of you. Like you were in perfect, uh, you joined perfectly somehow. So um, when, when, when I was with the guides and I was asking questions, anything I thought of, they would instantly, it, I, I think I might have said this already, but if I thought of a drop of water, it was before the thought could even leave my mind, I was the drop of water. I was the cloud making the water. I was the body drinking the water. I was the water flowing down a river. I mean, you were every, I was every aspect of creation in the thought I had. So if I had said, for example, I'm I'm just giving an example. If I said, what is it like to be Lee? I, I would have been transported into Lee as a child, as a baby, as, you know, I would have seen what you saw. I would have felt what you felt and it would have been done. (laughs) Like instantaneously, it, it, somehow you would absorb all this in in a in an eye less than an eye blink. What would you call that? An aspect of the love that you uh, that you felt. In other words, is the love uh, total empathy with other things, with uh, other beings? Yeah, that's, and a, that's a good way. I thought of it that way, but as you say it, I, that's yes, it, yeah, it, it's completely non-judgmental understanding of things that. You know, uh, you live here in the world and you make decisions and judgments and none of that existed there. You just understood that everything was as one. You know, we were all like even when I saw that history of the world, it was all one thing. And you would think I would think that 
well, this would be terrible, you know, all this horrible stuff that went on in the world. But I don't remember being horrified by it. I just remember being un- understanding it was part of a, a plan somehow. And I, I'm not trying to claim I know what the plan is. I don't. But somehow I recognized that there was a plan and that everything is connected to that plan. Everything. And I had another thought as I was listening to your story that, you know, with history, we write it down. It's the only way that we can record it. Right. Do you think the music was a way of portraying the unity of things and the unity of history and of life on the various planets that you saw and all of that? Was it an artistic expression of love, in other words? That's a great question, because prior to your appearance here, you're in Lilia's appearance in my life, I've been very particular about only relaying what had happened. It was a code of conduct for me. I didn't want to flavor it with my opinions and my thoughts. But I do now. I do want to do that because I I have opinions and thoughts about it. I've had decades to really uh, live and think this. And yes, I think you're right. I think that probably for who I was, and I was a dyed-in-the-wool I still am musical being, uh, I, I, you know, music like everyone who knows me knows that I'm as apt to give a song lyric from Bob Dylan or John Lennon as reply in my own language, you know. Uh, and I think maybe that was a way they understood to communicate with me. I've seen other people on NDEs when I watch them on uh, YouTube or wherever, and I've seen other people say, well, I knew this was Jesus. See, in my case, I didn't, but I was so on the fence with Jesus and God at that point in my life that I can understand that, you know, I I feel that was like a gift. We're not going to try to cloud your mind and go, Hey, you were supposed to be believing in me. What's wrong with you? You know, and that this being that I saw was a total opposite of anyone who would ever think or say something like that. You know? Well, you said that being that highest being that you met gave all encompassing acceptance and love. That is the way I, see the heavenly Jesus myself, but perhaps that's just a way of summarizing the personality that he expressed on earth. Yes. So I have come to the conclusion that that was Jesus. And I only came to that conclusion this week <laughs> for various reasons, but uh-huh. really over a lifetime. It's, it's been a lifetime. I've had, uh, I've had a tug of war with the idea of Jesus. I was, I, I'm somewhat intellectually oriented as a human here. Uh, I, 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 tend to deal in, in, in facts and specifics. But the reality is, and I know this as good or better than anyone, the reality is we're not that. We're really spirit. We're really love. And because I know that, I just feel at this stage of my life, I can't keep pretending that I don't know it. I do know it. I do believe that was Jesus. I believe he's the elder brother of us all. That's my belief. Um, in years to come, uh, you know, I, I went in the Air Force. Uh, my wife had another baby. We had another baby, not my wife. <laughs> we had another baby. We had two cho- two daughters. Uh-huh. One's a school teacher now and one lives in Florida. And after the Air Force, I became a police officer. And the whole strange thing about this was, for me, was that short of being offered the job of president of the United States, a police officer was the very last thing on any checklist I could have filled out at that stage, but it all seemed to push that way. And I, and I'm grateful. I, I, I got a great career. I, I had a great uh, chance to 
uh, you know, live a good life. My wife was a director of tourism, as you pointed out, and we got to travel. Uh, we had a great family. I got involved in music. We went to bluegrass festivals. Oh, my God, like eight, ten a year. You know, mm. we just had a fantastic life camping and everything's been good. You know, yeah. the, the, the bad. I mean, there's been I, we're human. You know, I lost a son in law to cancer um, and, and we've we've had our ups and downs. But, you know, of course. I understand that, you know, this is just a little piece of this. I get that. And I'm somewhat sorry for people if they can't get that, you know, for whatever reasons. I'm also saying- people who can get it on faith alone, because I feel like I would have been the atheist my whole life. That's what I think. <laughs> uh, when we when you were talking about that supreme being, which we're now going to call Jesus, you mentioned a sense of humor and connected it to the question, why am I here? Talk a, yeah. a little about that. So, yeah, I'll call him Jesus. This is new for me. It, when Jesus yeah. communicated to me this love, you know, we use love. Even love, love is all you need. You know, John Lennon, fantastic song and great meaning behind it. Yes. But it's so the depth is billions of times deeper than that. It's an all-encompassing love. And in that love, no longer in that moment anyway, uh, could I judge anybody for anything because I understood that it's all just learn. And th- this wasn't something that was said this way, but I understood it was all a learning curve. This is, this is how I've come to see it, that whatever we're doing here, and by we, I mean everybody, I believe it's all for the greater plan. And years later, uh, I think I might have mentioned this to you, uh, I, uh, I and my wife got involved in uh, studying The Course in Miracles. I guess this would have been, I'm thinking in the early 90s, somewhere around mm-hmm. there. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and we actually went to meetings and, and discussed it. And uh, we, to this day, I mean, we, we read it almost every day. Uh, I've never been one to be uh, an idol worshiper. So I don't worship statues and books and Bibles and belts. You know, I worship, I, I, I revere the spirit. That's the, and, but anything that can help me to guide myself into that spirit is what I've been pursuing for most of my life, you know. And uh, as I'm aging here, at least on the physical plane and probably elsewhere, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm understanding, I believe I'm understanding that I need to, uh, I don't know if the words do more, but I have to, I, I was in a job, you know, that, demanded a lot of me you know people spit on me people kicked me hit me um in one case they tried to shoot me you know stab me Mm. and i was in a job in which i reacted the way most people would react which is you know you you try to go home at the end of the day but i was never at least i never thought of myself as a a a mean cop tough cop but i think i i developed a bit of a shell that's what I'm trying to say. I think I got a little bit of a hard exterior, which was it was an act, because I think as we go through life, we all role play. You go into the workplace, or at least most of us do. Speaking for myself, I did. And you go into the workplace and, hey, you're this guy, you're that guy. But but in reality, I don't want to be anything but then what I really am, which I have now come to believe is pure spirit. And so I don't really have any roles. No, I have no 
no roles I want to adopt here. I just want to be forgiving. So where somebody would aggravate me, and it happens every day. I live in Naples, Florida. So, you know, somebody can run a red light and I go, what? You know, and then the old me might have yelled. But now the newer me just says, okay, I'm just going to bless that person. Because I don't know what's going on. Maybe they made a mistake. Maybe their mother's in the hospital. I don't know. I don't actually, I've come, I, I'm, <laughs> my kids have heard this a million times from me. I think I invented it, but if I didn't, it's still good. I, I'm known for saying, I don't believe that anyone almost ever understands what anyone else is saying. And uh, I think that's really true. And I think that as we try to communicate here in the world, we do it through so many symbols and gestures and coverings that it, it's hard to really see who we are and express who we are. And, you know, if, if I feel like if I did, I would probably look at people and go, I love you. Growing up in the through the 60s and 70s, cops were always the enemy to the teenagers. To me, too. Yes. And I'm sure to you as well when you were 17. And because they seldom expressed what you're talking about now, the kind of empathy or caring yeah. or forgiveness that, you know, if they would, and the disasters between races that are going on in the news, George Floyd and that, you know, if there had been more training, even that training encompassing the notion of NDEs and where we ultimately wind up in police academy, you know, it's hard to imagine, but if it could be made to happen that way, that more empathy could be taught to officers, there'd be a whole lot more communication. In your description, speaking of communication, I think you said that here communication is like one dimensional, but there yeah. it's three dimensional or even a hundred dimensional. Yeah. yeah, talk about the difference. So the difference is just actually the conversation we're having is, is sort of addressing that because um, I say to you, hey, I need some help. Well, you're going, okay, well, what help do you need? And you're probably in the back of your mind going, what's this going to cost me? Time, <laughs> money, whatever. And uh, actually, I might really be saying, you know, I, I, dropped, uh, I dropped something. Can you hand it to me? Mm. There, before you even finish the thought, it's completely understood and accepted and dealt with. So there isn't this struggle uh, that we have here. That's, that's, that's a, yeah, I've never thought of it that way, but as I'm thinking about it, it's like all the weight is lifted off of you. There's no longer this weight that we carry, or I feel I've carried anyway, for in various ways, you know, whether it was as a father, as a police officer, as a, just as a fellow human, you know, and, and it's funny, you know, talking about police, my experience in, involves uh, decades of policing and the vast majority of the men and women I work with are beautiful human beings who care deeply for people. And of course, if there's one aberration and in the era of video, you know, it becomes a George Floyd thing. Mm. But, you know, you don't get a lot of those videos of, of me um, cradling the junkie or uh, or or, you know, my fellow officer um, helping an elderly person out with a problem on their own time. You don't that that, that doesn't make for good TV and media. Right. Mm. So those things all exist. And I'll, I'll give you a classic example of when it really came to light for me. I was a bluegrass musician. I, I, I played different kinds of music, but I did a lot of bluegrass festivals. And uh, 
I was at a bluegrass festival in Maine. Hey, Maine, right? Yeah. <laughs> That's <laughs> sounds, right. Uh, sounds like home to you me. You know Thomas Point? Have you ever heard of Thomas Point? Uh, yes, I have. I, yeah. haven't, I don't think oh, I've been there, though. Yeah. So they used to have a bluegrass festival there. And I was uh, playing music. Uh, I was playing the banjo, five-string banjo, with a bass player, a guitar player, a couple other guys, mandolin. And the woman who was playing bass, we were having, you, you always talk in between these songs. And I, at the time I had long hair and a beard because I was undercover. I was working the narcotics unit in Newport, Rhode Island. Mm-hmm. So they didn't know what I did and I didn't advertise it, but somehow some, somebody must ask me what I did, so, which I, I, I always hated to bring up. I go, well, <laughs> I'm a cop. And they go, you know what? <laughs> I go, yeah. And the, and the girl says, I'm so surprised. I go, why? She goes, well, you're so nice. Uh-huh. And uh, I said, well, okay, thank you. I said, but did you have an experience with police that weren't nice? She said, well, no, but you know, when you drive down the highway and you see them in those sunglasses, they look so mean. And I said, so you've never even really met a cop. She said, not really. <laughs> and it just, it hit me like a bullet. Um, no pun intended. <laughs> I, it hit me right over the head that yeah. so many people, and that would include me, by the way, were prejudging nonstop, you know, we're just always prejudging. We're always going, well, you know, I know who you are because you're you're 70. I know who you are because you're 20. You are, you're white. You're black. You're Asian. Anyway, that was just a sidebar. I didn't even know why I was talking about it. You know, I am looking, as you probably have been, for that great calling that you've received, that you had a very important job to do. And I think, in part, you probably did it as being a caring cop. You know, it's such an oddity, at least from our point of view, from the outside world's point of view, looking into police. But that's what I'm here to tell you, Lee, that not an oddity inside there. It's the norm. You just don't see it. You don't hear about it. It's not put out there. And when one nutty cop goes nutty and does bad things, and it happens, of course, it becomes front page news. It becomes media sensation. I have no dog in this fight. I'm not a cop anymore. I'm just telling you the truth. Most police officers that I experienced, I met thousands of them over my lifetime, are kind and caring people. But that being said, we did play a role. And that role was we got punched, we got attacked, we got shot at, you know, you name it. Mm -hmm. But that's my experience. I can only speak to what I know. And of course, did I ever know any cops to do bad things? Yeah, I did. Nothing along the lines of, you know, that George Floyd kind of stuff, you know. But, you know, I, there were times I, I saw a guy step over the line. You know, I, I understand that. And I can remember pulling a guy off a guy, you know, the, mm-hmm. the fight was over, you know. And I told him, hey, enough. I was a sergeant at the time. And I'm glad I did because that's what needed to be done. You know, I, I don't mean just because somebody could be filming. Uh, at that time, they probably weren't even filming. But right. just because there's a point, you know. Let me ask you another uh, way of looking at it. You and I were talking yesterday, and we, we mentioned the story in Bet- from Betty Eady about the man who came to Earth to just to be a drunk, to be a reminder yeah. to another man who came to Earth to be a was a lawyer, I guess. Yes. To be a stumbling block, as it were, that would teach him a lesson, teach him something. Then you said in your description that when you were there, you felt that everything was connected. And so the George Floyd and the cop who put his <laughs> knee on his neck had a, a relationship and it was seemed totally evil from our yeah. point of view, but perhaps yeah. from a more universal point of view, it was something that had to happen in order to achieve a goal or an end. Yes. And there were probably like everything, it was very multifaceted. 
But if we believe, if you choose to believe Betty Eady, and I do, <laughs> I can't, yeah. I can't not believe her because of what happened to me. If you choose to believe that, then you exactly what you're saying would have to be the case. I would have to believe that two souls made a pact that one would kill the other one. Mm. I would have to believe that. And this is where a lot of people think I'm crazy. But if I choose, and I do choose, to believe that all good will win out, rule out, then I have to believe that, and I know people don't want to hear this, but that Adolf Hitler, Charles Manson, all of them get to the same spot I get to. Now, I don't know how they get there. I don't know how long it takes in terms of whatever that means. But I think we're all heading to the same ocean, just traveling down different rivers. Mm. It's my impression from all the stories that I've heard that we are our own worst judges, that an objective Hitler would have a lot to make him regret and feel unworthy about, and that that might keep him from going into the light, might put him in a ghostly realm or even a, even a hellish round of his own choosing to uh, purge his soul, as it were. Right. Let me right. ask you something else while we're at it. You said that you were taken to a place where you could observe the world literally and watched the globe spinning. And then uh, I guess that's when the tablet appeared. But you, you saw the entire history. When you saw the history, was it like watching television or was it like being there yourself? It was like watching a high definition television. We didn't have high def back then, but that's right. how I describe it now, which sounds ludicrous, but it made perfect sense at the time. Mm -hmm. It was like left to right going left to right and at an astonishing speed and at, at an astonishing ability on my end to absorb the information, mm -hmm. you know, something I, you know, you, you just couldn't even fathom here. Now in a timeless place, speed would be irrelevant because you just automatically know the, the entire picture, but perhaps for a newly arrived soul on the other side, they have to adapt to the timelessness nature. of Right. Of and that is the case there. I don't know. It's like trying to describe sound to a deaf person or maybe blue to a lifelong blind person. How do you do something that's not describable? But that's that's what it is. And I want to backtrack, Lee. I hope I, I'm clear on this because I was never suicidal. When I was trying to slice my wrist at the age mm -hmm. of 17, it was because I had just left that place. And obviously, I knew I was dead. How I knew, I don't know. Because why would I be slicing my wrist? And right. I did not do it in despair, anger, or distress. I was just so determined to get back there like right away. And yes, I'm glad that I stuck it out and we did all this because I think this is probably what my plan was. And I probably would have screwed it up royally if I'd done that. I think that's true. I mean, that suicides can go in all, all different directions, even ones that aren't into despair when they're doing it. One of the things that people read about when we describe near-death experiences as real and the love that you experience on the other side as real, realer than here, is yeah. that people will start killing themselves to get over there. I don't uh -huh. think I've heard of any cases. Yours was one of the first where someone actually thought of killing themselves to get back. Oh, I didn't realize that. I've never thought about it. Yeah. Now that you pointed out, I guess I never have heard that in the ones I... Yeah. yeah. In Betty Eady's case, she threw a tantrum. Remember, she said, she threw herself down. She, she was like an infant. I won't go back. <laughs> <laughs> and my wife discovered that book uh, when she wrote that. And we were in Boston and uh, 
and she was in a bookstore and she said, Oh, look at this. And I looked at it, I go, Hmm, that looks interesting. We bought that. And of course it's like building blocks in my life because, Oh, I, I, I left that big chunk out. Didn't I about Raymond Moody? I'm sorry. Uh, so, uh, when, when I went to Denver, Colorado in the air force, mm-hmm. and I believe if I, if I'm doing my math, right, it may have been 1975 at this point. And, uh, I'm watching TV and I'm watching a daytime talk show and I believe it was Merv Griffin. And he says, our guest is Dr. Raymond Moody. And he comes out and I go, okay, what's he talking about? He goes, he's just written a book called life after life. I go, huh. and all of a sudden he starts reading these accounts of people. And this is the first uh, inkling I had that other people had the experience I had. I jumped, literally jumped right out of the chair and said, Oh my God, I got to find this book. I got to go buy it. This is what happened to me. My wife said, slow down. <laughs> and uh, I did, I did buy it and I read it and I said, and, and again, ever since then, uh, all these accounts I've either read or heard of, they vary different uh, greatly, but there are always things that I instantly can recognize. And uh, I go, this is real because the way they're trying to describe the communication, the way they try to describe the acceptance and love, it's so incommunicable a word. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's so impossible to communicate here that I see them struggle for it. And I know that's real because I struggle for it every time I try to explain it. The last time I saw Raymond Moody, I guess it was two years ago, maybe at there's a, a spiritualist camp in Unity, Maine that uh, that he he likes to come to. He thought that it would be a great idea to invent a nonsense language because English is so defective in expressing what people see on the other side that he thought perhaps a new language would be the way to go. I think it was sort of tongue in cheek. Well, it's been invented. It's what's there. <laughs> it's there. We just have to get through this part to get to that part. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So it's it's there. The, the language is amazing because it is not a language. It's a total understanding, empathy, and love and non-judgment. Mm. Yeah. You know, and, I, and I suspect it's because people have seen that love that they don't kill themselves to get back to it, even though they want desperately to get back to it because they have seen the nature of love is is one that says, I don't kill myself, that I'm part of the whole and I can't do that to the rest of humanity and the world. Right. It would be selfish. I, I mean, I didn't think that way at 17. I was selfish. I just wanted to get yes, that. Me too. <laughs> you know, that's all I wanted. But it would be selfish now that I look at it to, you know, we're going to have struggles. We all are physical, mental, you know, spiritual. We're all going to have these struggles. But what we have to remember is, this is only such a tiny piece of who and what we are. Mm-hmm. And if we, let's say the addict, you know, if they thought that's all they really were, but they're not. It doesn't matter if you're an addict, a cop. It doesn't matter if you're Putin or probably, in my estimation, even a dog or a mouse or a fly. I think all of creation is holy, you know, and connected. Mm. And some of us are cast in good roles and some in bad. And apparently, from what people understand of near death and pre-birth, we have a hand in choosing the kind of lives that we That's what I'm beginning to uh, accept. You know, I, I was very um, stoic about it. I said, this is what happened to me. And I, I, but now that I think about it, you know, and, and hear from people who have had experiences similar, but outside of mine, like Betty Edie. Sorry, Betty, I keep bringing up. <laughs> well, if people want to listen to her, I, I interviewed her uh, not I too, too I long ago. I haven't the whole thing yet. So basically... In a nutshell, 
because that's what we do here on earth. We put things in boxes. I had an experience that really, in my estimation, was probably, well, I know it was a big gift to me personally, because there's no way I think I could have navigated my life the way I did in retrospect. But also, I want to share this experience because I want people to understand this is real. You don't die. Uh, there's no need to fear death. I feared it as a 16-year-old, 17-year-old. And I'm, I'm human. I'm like anyone else. I, I'm, I'm sure I'm going to be fearing the, the moment of death, however that might happen. But certainly don't fear death. It's all part of a process that is going to catapult us through eternity and in return to God and all of, all of those souls before, after, with us now. That it, we're, we're all going to be there. I mean, it really is going to happen. Mm. And in a, a way of looking at it is that we're already there because time itself doesn't exist. That's right. Because if you choose to quit playing small and start walking the walk and talking the talk, then I think changes can happen exponentially. So mm. in my life, although I'm an older man and I've traded youth for wisdom, I do have some wisdom now. Yes. And there's nothing like starting off uh, with an NDE to put you <laughs> on the right path. <laughs> yes. It can take, it can take decades to realize it, but I it think from the beginning you're walking it. I'm going to. I am. I am walking it. I, I, I'm forgiving everybody instantly as much as I can <laughs> and helping them as much as I can. It's been a whole process, but I'm there. I, I know I'm there. I'm where God wants me to be. I understand that. Well, I did have a thought concerning what your calling might be, because you uh, had this experience when you were 17 and it made such a difference ultimately in your life, that if you had a way of talking to other 17-year-olds about near-death experience, you know, as a form of counseling maybe, or just, uh -huh. you know, just getting out and you know, spending some time with some gangs and telling them about what you experienced in your life oh. at their age, it might open some eyes to uh, the possibilities. You know, I think you're right. And I think the thing that stymied me in, in, in previous years was I was a young guy trying to get through a career and into things. And I knew, you know, if you start talking like that, that there were some people who were going to say, you know, you've got a psychological imbalance here. And I almost couldn't blame them. <laughs> and that's all part of the process. I, I, I'm just being open with it. I have friends and relatives who are, you know, various. Um, I can see now, <laughs> I believe, oh boy, this is going to sound arrogant, but I, I'm trying to say it properly. I believe, I've been told by other people, and I've always kind of said no, but I do believe I'm on an elevated plane spiritually compared to some people. And of course, I'm not saying I'm Jesus. I'm nowhere near that. But I do feel like maybe, as I think about it, there must be something in my life that is connecting the dots to the point. And look at you. I mean, what you did in your 50s, you know, mm -hmm. I, that, that's the same thing I'm talking about, this willingness and, and Lilia. And I think for at least us three, uh, at least we had the ability to fall back on experiences that, you know, kind of gave us a shove. And again, I, I admire people who do it strictly on faith because they're going to have the NDE. They are going to have it. It's just a question of when. Yeah. Yeah. And then at that point, they're out of here 
<laughs> because that's when they die. Presumably, right? And uh, but then and who like knows? Maybe there's a reincarnation as a possibility too. Well, I can't rule that out. You know, I just can't because if once you rule in that God is all and anything is possible, then nothing really can be ruled out, right? Mm. So I can't rule out reincarnation. I've never, you know, studied reincarnation and thought I was. But, you know, when, when we look at experiences of deja vu and when I first met my wife, for example, she was 14. I was 16, I think, if I have this right. We just looked across the street at each other. And at that time, there was no way I was ever going to admit to her, you know, not with my, my vanity and pride that that happened. But it did. She always admitted. She said instantly she called it love at first sight. Mm-hmm. But I, I would call it connection, recognition at first sight, as in, oh, we meet again. Yeah. yeah. So I think there's something there somewhere, whether it was, you know, where I'm describing or, or even here on Earth in 1840. Who knows? Well, we glorify love. We romanticize love. We, you know, write songs and poems and, and novels. And uh, when we experience it, we're delighted. And it's beautiful on Earth, but it's just a shadow of what really exists when you get to the essence of love and find it's 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 the heart of creation. It is what we're living. I mean, we're living in a world that was created by vibration, and that vibration was love. Uh-huh. So, so when we the more we can identify with that and communicate that to other people, the better off things should turn out. <laughs> so it turns out we literally are on a mission for God. Yes, we, yes, we all are on a mission for God, and to the level people can recognize that or not recognize that. I'm not responsible. I can't make them. I'm not, I'm not starting Jonestown. Okay. No. I'm only here to tell the truth about what happened to me and to explain that I now recognize Jesus, the Holy spirit and God as a, not a concept floating up in heaven, but within me, around me, surrounding me and all thy love. Yeah. The uh, yes, there is a problem with religions in that they tend to be uh, they, they start off in a good in a yep. good way, but then they, they become more and more exclusive and uh, they can become very uh, well, look at uh, look at the Sunni and the Shiite Muslims, you uh-huh. know, it's basically the same exact same religion uh, come right. down from Mohammed. And yet they're at each other's throats because they disagree on how the bloodline went or something along those lines down right. from Mohammed. I mean, and, and Catholics and Protestants and, and mm-hmm. Jews have been at each other's throats at various times over the years as well for stupid, and, stupid and, reasons. And you're, you're right. You're right, Lee. And it's made me inherently distrustful of religion over my life. Mm. But I want to be clear. I don't cast aspersions on anybody's religion, I guess, in short of flying into skyscrapers. But I never found a religion that worked for me. And if I did, I would wholeheartedly buy into it. I really would. But I, I do definitely believe in elements of Christianity. Uh, elements of Buddhism. Uh, I believe in mo- a, a multitude of things. And some people, you know, I've had um, very um, dedicated, shall we say, um, Christians say, well, Wayne, you're just making the religion fit what you want it to. And I would say that, no, I'm, I'm, I'm just expressing the, the best knowledge and truth I can based on what my mind and spirit can comprehend here and now. I don't subscribe to those um, severe views on in any way, because I don't think I know that 
when you die, you're not going to be judged in a severe way. What father here would treat his his own child, well, most most fathers, poorly, you know, and then imagine the greatest father, or or I, it doesn't have to be gender specific, uh, greatest being of all, mm. uh, it's, there's no way. They, it's total acceptance. It's non-judgment. And, you know, I think if I have this right to sin literally is translated to miss the mark. Is that, yes. is that to fall short of the, of the to mark. fall short of a mark? Yeah. Yep. And that's, if you look at sin that way, it becomes a whole different idea because you just say, oh yeah, because I hold myself accountable as high or higher than anybody in my life. And I've, if that's the word you choose to use, then fine, I've sinned. I don't ever say I'm a sinner because I don't believe in the concept. I've made a series of mistakes, but I don't have any inclination to look back on those mistakes. I don't judge that 25-year-old guy or that 40-year-old guy. I understand what he was doing and trying to do. One of the things that have teenagers turning toward agnosticism or atheism, as you were before <laughs> your NDE, I think is the fact that we do tend to relate God the Father to our biological fathers. And when you look at your biological father, if he's failed you in any way, it's as if God failed every you. Every father has one way or another. Absolutely. Absolutely. Which is why it's really better to think of, I think, of God as a father and mother both, uh, a merging yes. of the two. And in, in the Bible, he's described in one passage, at least, as a as a mother hen that gathers his his chicks together under his wings. Yeah, or under her wings, I guess I should say uh, that that uh, that that aspect of love. I mean, fathers have a disciplinary, rule-driven idea about love. A lot of them, and uh, yeah. it, it falls short. It it's a sin in itself because it falls short of the mark, which is well, we're li- we're living in the material world, and uh, as as Sting once said, we're we are spirits in the material world. Yes, and uh, the more we can recognize. In my opinion, the more we can recognize the spiritual side of things, the less we will have to be material. Yes. Well, Wayne, we are uh, out of time, and I want to thank you so much for sharing your profound near-death experience with us today and to hear how you're working on on working it out like me late in life (laughs) or later in life. Yeah. If listeners would like to get in touch with you, how can they do that? I have an email that is capped acoustic that's short for captain so it's c-a-p-t no period and the word acoustic a-c-o-u-s-t-i-c at gmail.com nice and can they hear some of your music is there a youtube yes if they go on spotify or youtube and look up wayne morrison the finish line was the one cd i made in completion i was in various bands and and duos etc and that stuff exists out there somewhere on on youtube i'm sure but if they want to hear recordings they can listen to uh the finish line by wayne morrison on spotify probably on pandora i'm guessing although i never looked and youtube well i love the one piece that you played on the banjo that was on youtube thanks it's excellent folks can also comment on the show's site on our youtube channel uh, when your show goes up and if you check in on that once in a while and someone asks a question, you can reply uh-huh. you know, in the way it works on YouTube. So thank you so much again, Wayne. Oh, thank you. I, I, it was a great opportunity for me to express myself. If listeners would like to hear the show again or any of our more than 500 archived ad-free NDE interviews, go to TalkZone's NDE radio site and hit the past shows button. 
or go to our YouTube channel, NDE Radio with Lee Whitting, where you can subscribe to and comment on the complete NDE Radio library. And be sure to check out our NDE Radio Facebook page. Just search NDE Radio with Lee Whitting on your Facebook app. And listen again next Monday, 11 a.m. Eastern at Talk Zone for more NDE Radio. I'm your host, Lee Whitting, saying thanks for listening. <laughs>